episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and management advisor, Joe Pine, who is also a co-founder of Strategic Horizons. You may recognize Joe from his most famous book, The Experience Economy, competing for customer time, attention, and money, which he co-wrote with longtime business partner, Jim Gilmore. Joe's first book was a solo effort, and it was titled Mass Consumption, The New Frontier in Business Competition. Joe has also co-written Infinite Possibility, Creating Customer Value on the Digital Frontier, and Authenticity, What Consumers Really Want. As you might imagine, our conversation revolves around turning events into experiences. Here are a few things we touch upon. Events that create memorable experiences are important creators of value and connection. The difference between branding and experience. The incredible power of events to be part of the transformation economy, which is one step above the experience economy. Why it's best to create virtual and hybrid events that go beyond what is possible at in-person events rather than trying to replicate them. And why it's important for brands to charge directly for experiences. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and don't forget to check out the other episodes of the Skiff Meetings podcast. For a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings podcast. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Joe Pine. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Miguel. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Joe, as I shared earlier, uh, I've known about your your work for, for quite a while and I've been a fan. And I would love you to kind of introduce yourself, if you don't mind, to someone who may be not familiar with, with who you are and the work that you've done so far. And I'd love to kind of get your connection with business events, if you don't mind. Our audience is very much uh, the business events community. Um, so I'd like you to kind of go through, but also see what connection that you have, because I know you have a lot of different connections with, with events in the event world. Well, as uh, you know, I uh, I think my of my uh, purpose in business as figuring out what's going on in the world of business, and then developing frameworks to first describe what's happening, and then prescribe what companies can do about that. I did that first with my book, Mass Customization, about efficiently serving customers uniquely, uh, and um, uh, which was published uh, you know thirty years ago, actually. Uh, and then most famously, and, and why we're basically talking is because of the book, The Experience Economy, that I wrote with my partner, uh, Jim Gilmore, uh, which first was published in 1999. We updated it in 2011 and re-released re it just in time for the pandemic in 2020 uh, uh, with a, uh, a new uh, preview on competing for customer time, attention, and money. So uh, events are obviously a huge part of the experience economy that uh, whether they're they're not permanent places, but they're temporary uh, activities that people to places that, that people go. And uh, Jim and I did our own events uh, for 20 years. 
we, we created an event we called uh, Think About from 2000 or from 1998 to 2017. We ran that in basically a different city every year. We repeated a few of them. And it was an opportunity for us to um, uh, practice what we preach, to do what we talk about in the experience economy, use the same um, um, uh, frameworks that we we encourage others to do to apply to our own event, which was always a, a very fun and very tiring thing to do. I'm pretty sure the 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 event planner is listening will will relate to that. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like you are at least in part or have been an event professional. Do you see yourself as, as an event professional or or? No, we're we're, we're event amateurs. You know, rank amateurs. We, we I remember um, uh, one time uh, at one of our events, uh, Jim said something that I thought was just brilliant and described it perfectly. That uh, think about was the dress rehearsal for an event that we never actually put on. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, you know, because we never did all the blocking and tackling, never figured everything out to the nth degree. We know we're very good on our feet. And so we would uh, have directions, but often we were huddling together while they were working on something. What we, what exactly do we want to do next? How do we want to approach this next thing? You know, we knew what we we're going to do, but how we we're going to do it, we always often uh, left up to the vagaries of, of the moment. And uh, and it basically always worked out. So um, so we're amateurs in in that regard. But it was a lot of fun to do, and it developed a lot of techniques and and uh, uh, ways uh, and, and new thinking that you know found its way into other books and articles and work with clients in the future. Absolutely. And I know you speak a lot, so you've kind of participated as a as a, as an important part of. I would say hundreds of events. I don't. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine thousands. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, so, want to talk a little bit about the different books that you've written? Um, I noticed one thing. Curious. Your books always have a sort of um, statement or a definition, and, and then a subtitle. And is that just <laughs> how you work? I think that's kind of what you were saying. But but I kind of want to understand a little bit of the your theory around this. Is it kind of like you, you introduce a new concept and then you make sure to kind of explain it in the subtitle? Yeah, you know, I'm not. I I hadn't really noticed that before, <laughs> but yes, uh, I don't know that how the unusual that is. The uh, the fourth book I wrote might be a little different. Uh, it's got the right sort of subtitle that you're talking about, but the the name of it is Infinite Possibility, and so which doesn't really describe maybe, but it's all about how you fuse the real and the virtual. You know, so so the subtitle was Creating Customer Value on the Digital Frontier. So maybe that fits as well, but uh, but yeah, we so the the um, the original title, the experience accounting, was going to be every business a stage, you know, which is in the subtitles. Subtitles work is theater and every business a stage, and then there's what they call a reading line in the business, which I didn't know existed. So I had this other line that goods and services are no longer enough. You know, so you had these three things that really described what was what was going on. But when we came out with the Harvard Business Review article, "Welcome to the Experience Economy." in late uh, 1998, you know, like seven, eight months before the book came out, it got such notoriety and 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 uh, play that we decided, no, that's what the book should be called. Call it the experience economy, then we'll put the every business a stage in the subtitle. I'm I'm glad you went with that title. I think it's become really <laughs> iconic and, and I've studied it. And I think many event designers and event planners have studied that uh, in great detail. So wanted to go kind of back. I think, you know, if you don't mind, we're going to talk about the experience economy because I think that's that's a really important part of your work. Um, but I wanted to kind of 
understand how you got to this. Was it kind of analyzing different businesses? Was it really thinking about experiences, how they were changing at that time? And this is back in, in 98, of course. So this is kind of a kind of early on in, in this idea of kind of events and experiences, if you will. Yeah, no, it was none of that. It was providence. It was something that just came out of my mouth that that I often talked about how mass customizing goods automatically turn them into services. I won't go into the into the reasons for it, but one um, but it is in the book. One um, one person in this uh, uh, full day um, uh, class that I was teaching on mass customization. After I said that, he raised his hand and he said, you know, you talked about service companies that mass customize as well. What does it turn a service into? And I shot back, well, mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And I went, whoa, that sounds good. Hold on a second. I got to write that down. And, and as I thought about that more and more, I mean, literally, it just came out of my mouth. But I realized that, that, that it was true, that if you design a service that is so appropriate for a particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go wow and turn into a memorable event, right? That's what an experience is, a memorable event. And uh, and then therefore experiences would be a distinct economic offering as distinct from services as services are from goods. Therefore, there'd be an economy based off experiences and that would be the experience economy that from that perspective in the early nineties would eventually supplant the service economy just like the service economy superseded the industrial economy and the industrial economy took over from the agrarian economy. So, so it all sort of came together in a few months of, of thinking about that, um, and including actually the next economy that I increasingly talk about. I don't know if you want to get into that, Miguel, but we'll, we'll leave that for later. Uh, that was in there from the very beginning because I continue to ask, like, you know, what's next? Then, you know, what, what happens if you customize experiences and so forth? Um, and, what, and people often say, oh, you were so futurist. It was so, so ahead of its time back then. But, but actually, once you see it, right, you see it all over the place, right? Even... 30 years ago, I saw it all over the place. Uh, and I mean, obviously the debarkation point, like all economic offerings, experiences have always been around, but they, you know, economists lump them into services when we really need to pull them out and say, hey, this really is distinct. But a major demarcation point was July 17th, 1955, of course, when, when Walt Disney opened up Disneyland. Then, then it's like everybody knows, well, this is distinct. This is different, right? This themed experience, even though actually themed experiences have been around before, but it had such notoriety that um, that it really, really you know, made a difference in how people you know, even viewed the world of what was going on and viewed uh, people and how they reacted and what they thought about and so forth. So, uh, so a lot of, you know, there's, there's been an explosion basically since that point uh, and, uh, and under this day and, and continuing on into the future. Absolutely. I want to explore a little bit the, the relationship between kind of experience and brand kind of branding. I think a lot of people would kind of put that in, in the same box. Do you see those as different? Are they complementary? Are they sort of a what's the relationship they're, there? Yeah, they're different. They're different. Um, and I'm not a brand guy and people always want to bring up brands, right? I'm just I'm just not a brand guy. I just it's not something I really think about a lot. Uh, I think about businesses and companies, enterprises, and how they create greater economic value. But of course, branding is something that can help in that regard. And there was there was a there was a branding guy uh, from Wolf Olins, I remember, but I don't remember his name. Who, when we wrote the Welcome to the Experience Economy in the Harvard Business Review, um, uh, wrote a letter to the editor about it, and he said. Um, uh, he, and he said something that I always remember that branding uh, is the promise of an experience. 
right? Branding is the promise of an experience. And so I sort of like that definition that, that with branding, you're promising a certain, certain thing that, that the consumers or, or business people will get from your offering, from your place, from your, your company. And the experience you then have with them either matches that brand or that you've tried to create or, or it doesn't. Of course, people, people talk about managing the brand, but the brand actually exists inside the heads of all of your customers. It's their perceptions of it that are that are really important. And that relates to, to authenticity as well, which is all about the, the perceptions that you create with people. And so, I, so I've known um, uh, one colleague of mine created a Venn di diagram where he talked about um, the branding and, and experience. And where those actually intersected, where there was the match, then he, he wrote in authenticity, right? That's where authenticity lies, is when the branding actually meets the experience uh, that yeah. uh, the customers have. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about Apple computers, you know, one of the largest companies in the world. And, and that has so much kind of experience. Um, I'm thinking the Apple launch events are sort of an experience. Yeah. Of course, the experience of using devices, right. you know, they have exactly. a very specific kind of way of doing. The and way of course, the Apple stores. Exactly, the Apple Store. So, so I mean, there's a lot there um, to kind of unpack. Um, you brought up authenticity, so let's let's jump into authenticity as well. You you have another book called Authenticity, which which you I think mentioned was your, your second book, um, sure. and I think what was it the um, third book? Sorry, um, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary just launched. I think you you posted about this on LinkedIn. They just said that the word of the year is authentic. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think, you know, authenticity, brand experience, they really go hand in hand. But you've been kind of highlighting this idea of authenticity as something that consumers really want for a really long time. And I wonder if you could expand on that and kind of, you know, link those things together. Yeah, well, it just it just happens that as life becomes more and more of a paid for experience. And here you can talk about Jean Bollard and, and hyper reality and, and, and all that sort of stuff that came about after Disneyland Simulacrum and so forth. Um, but uh, but as life becomes more and more of a paid for experience, it's just natural that people increasingly question what is real and what is not. And increasingly, they don't want the fake from the phony, they want the real from the genuine. So we have to manage the customer's perceptions of authenticity to, to, to render that perception or engender that perception of authenticity with them when they when they think or interact with our offerings in the places in which they're offered and with the, the company as a whole. Interesting. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the link between events and experiences. You know, this is definitely that my entry point to the experience economy and kind of understanding that. Um, and, you know, I've read a lot about different ways that, that you describe it. I love the idea of kind of going from a uh, a product or a service to an experience and how that raises value. And then there's that idea of transformation, which is, I think, even higher above, right? And I think events or meetings have the potential to kind of do this. But I wanted to go back to the idea of, you know, are there core things that events need to do to kind of become experiences? Because I think in our world or in my world, there's a lot of, you know, companies or, or service providers that sort of like to use the word experience rather than event. And sometimes I feel like they're just throwing that in there because it's right. cool, you know, it's like the new word. But are there kind of significant things in your mind that really are needed to kind of be in place to make, you know, an event an experience? Yeah, yeah. One, one of the things you remind me of is, is in our book uh, on authenticity, we have these uh, axioms of authenticity. And, uh, and the first one is that if you are authentic, 
you don't have to say you're authentic, right? So one of the problems with authenticity is that people throw the word around. And once you proclaim yourself to be authentic, well, then people are going to play the gotcha game and look for anything that detracts from that authenticity, right? You, you put a target on your back, which is not the way it should be. And to a degree, the same thing is true with the word experience. I don't like like retail places that say it, it's an experience, right? Don't just don't say your experience, be an experience. Uh, and, uh, and events are a, I'll say a subclass category of experiences, right? Experiences are more than events, but all events are experiences. Again, they're experiences, memorable events, right? So, so you think we can have an event in a retail, memorable event in a retail place. We can have a memorable event in an attraction. We have a memorable event at a sporting event, a concert, a play, and so forth. Um, but also in the events, the, the temporary ones, the conferences and so forth that we put on. Uh, for um, uh, current and, and and potential customers, right? Those should be experiences. They shouldn't just be boring informational uh, meetings. Absolutely. What about the transformational side? Is that just the kind of even better or is that part of the goals of the event or are there kind of key things where you need to you know have happen so, so an event can actually be transformational? Yeah, it, it depends on the event. We um, uh, so so to, to to square the circle or complete the circle. Um, uh, transformations are the fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value. To be clear, they are a distinct economic offering. So commodities, goods, services, experiences, and then what happens when you customize the experience when you design the experience that's so appropriate for somebody? Then you can't help but turn into what we often call a life transforming experience. An experience that changes us in some way, and that's what a transformation is about. You know, so so healthcare, uh, consulting, uh, fitness centers, uh, you know, universities, uh, coaches of all stripes are in the transformation business. So so any experience can be transformative. You're right. You can actually have, with no intention of having, a life transforming experience anywhere. Hopefully Remember? that's a good good transformation, right? You don't have a, a negative transformation. Yes, yes, there are negative ones as well. Uh, but I remember many years ago speaking to the American Association of Museums. There were three or 400 people there, I think. Um, there were uh, curators or managers of museums. And I asked for a show of hands about how many people you know, in the audience are in the museum business because of a particular experience they had as a kid in a museum. And about 40% of the hands went up, right? So that's the proverbial lightning strikes and you have this experience say, hey, this is what I want to do, right? Even if they didn't necessarily recognize that at a time, but they became interested in something that led to being, uh, you know, working in a museum on it. So that can happen in any sort of event that we have, but we can also design it intentionally for that. You know, experience or transformations are transformative experiences. We only ever change by the experiences we have. As, as the saying goes, we're all the product of our experiences. So if you can diagnose somebody coming into the event about what are their aspirations? What are they looking to become? If you then design the set of, of uh, experiences within the event that people have to be able to, to go from where they are to what they want to become, um, then they, you can effect a transformation uh, at, you know, during that time, right? Because it can be a very short amount of time that, that, that we can do that. Um, uh, although generally it takes a, a longer set of experiences over months and sometimes years. I think every event professional listening will probably want to be aiming for those 
creating transformational experiences. I think that that's a big goal. Well, um, transformations create much more value, right? So it's something that you can specifically charge for and charge for distinctly from the experience. Yeah, like you said, the coaching as well is kind of a big part of that transformation. Um, there's the Harvard Business Review article last year, the new you business. And I think this is part of this idea of transformation, but also this idea of creating businesses that can charge even more, right? Can have this added value because if they're helping you change to something that you want to be, then, then, you know, they can almost, the charging can be almost limitless, right? Um, how did you kind of, I know, I know the new you seems like such a, an interesting concept and, and kind of an expansion from this idea of experience and transformation economy. Is that really a the strong, like a really strong thing happening right now, the way you're seeing it? Yes, absolutely. We're sort of in the same spot in the transformation economy when transformations become the predominant economic offering that we were 30 years ago you know, with the experience economy when I first identified it. Uh, and uh, and it's something that you, you see, again, once you understand it, you see it more and more and more uh, out there and there's more opportunities for it. It's, you know, and then actually the, the pandemic actually accelerated it because you know the the one thing we couldn't have during the pandemic was the the, the experiences that we that we love because any place people uh, gathered together was not a place anybody wanted to be, uh, and so we we greatly increased our, our our expenditures on goods the things we could bring in, knowing by the way that all those goods we bought were for the experiences they enable, and uh, so it's still you know part of experiences but we're we're spending on on books in the same way. With transformations, we can buy self-help books to transform rather than a distinct offering. So depending on how much we want to do it uh, based on ourselves. But but what we realize is that we don't need more stuff, right? We've got enough stuff in the developed world. What, what we missed were the shared experiences we had with our family, with our loved ones, with our friends, with our neighbors, our, our colleagues, even complete strangers in the stadium. That's what we missed. And so as soon as the pandemic opened up, uh, experiences exploded to whatever capacity that that people allowed them to, to the government allowed them to come in, uh, and 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 what also then was an effect of it is that yes we love these memorable experiences you got to create a memory for it to be an experience in the first place but increasingly we want those those to be more meaningful right because again we miss that shared meaning that we had and and that's a half step towards experiences that are transformative as well. And so we we're there's a crying need for transformative experiences for transformations now uh, accelerated by by the pandemic, and we're going to see that more and more and more. And so there's opportunities for businesses to to help people to change because change is the most difficult thing in the world, right? Whatever you want to do and change your life, it's hard, right? Yeah, Ozempic makes weight loss a lot easier, right? So there are occasionally things like that, but change is hard. And uh, um, and so people look for guidance for it. They look for help in, in doing it. And that's what where companies can step in and uh, and be their coach, be their guide, their their navigator, their Sherpa, you know, whatever you want to call it and helping them achieve their aspirations. It sounds like a perfect fit for the events business. Do you see it that way or, or are the experiences that people are looking for not necessarily events and conferences and that kind of thing. I think that I think it's a good fit for events. There is something that they have to do. And you alluded to it yourself, Miguel, when when I was talking about that, you said, you know, like and coaching, right? Yes. And coaching, because 
there are basically three phases. Well, well, there's really four phases. Phase zero of a transformation is, is like triage, right? Is this person really capable of the transformation they aspire to become, right? Because if not, you don't want to be working with them. Um, and, and there may be some pre-work that they need to do. Uh, two, or, or phase one then, is that diagnosis. Who is this customer? What do they want to become? And then how do you design as phase two, the set of experiences? Generally, it's not monotonically increasing. Generally, there are ups and downs as you go there until you get to that that uh, uh, you know that aspired state that you have. But you can't have, okay, show's over, event's done, go home, because uh, you need follow through, right? Follow through, which is not follow up. Follow up is like, hi, how are you doing? Follow through is ensuring that the transformation takes hold. You know, if I go through, um, uh, there's a MyQuit program that uh, Halion, the maker of Nicorette uh, gum, Nicoderm CQ patches they have, there's a transformational program they put on top of the goods, you know, the pharmaceutical goods you can buy. Uh, and uh, and when you do that, you have a 50% greater likelihood of quitting smoking. But if I, after I go through that eight-week program, I quit smoking, but three weeks later, I light up again, I really wasn't transformed. So the one thing that events need to do if they want to truly do that is, or at least to create more value, is have some sort of follow through. Say, okay, the, the event's not done. You want to extend that event in the future. You want to continue, particularly with something like coaching or guiding, to keep in touch with them, to help them, um, and to maybe give them more. So then what's, what's wonderful about that is most events are annual, right? That you do an annual conference in that. So now what you really want to do is you want to maintain the customer relationships between two annual events. Right. So before, when you come back, let's stay in contact. Let's get money from them for the coaching that they're going to do before they come back, where we now already know where they're at and what else they need and can make that into a lifelong relationship. So the opportunity is there, but you but doing it just by thinking about the event alone, right, once a year, generally is not going to make it happen. A couple of follow up questions come to mind. Um is this what you mean by mass customization? Because I know that's also a big topic of yours. Because, um, you know, I think a lot of event professionals will think, hey, I can put on these events and I can make them transformative. But you're suggesting that that's not enough, if I'm hearing correctly, that you really need to kind of help people learn and transform and take their own path. And and so mass customization seems like what you're suggesting in some way. It's a, it's a, it's a way of, of helping do that, right? So mass customization is at the DNA of this progression of economic value, because again, it's how I discovered it by, and, and, and one way to understand it is it's the antidote to commoditization, right? Commoditization is like the law of gravity. If you do nothing else, you'll be commoditized over time. Customization lifts you up. Customization differentiates you uh, because you cannot help be, be differentiated, i.e. not a commodity. If you work directly with each individual customer, understand what they need and then help them um, get exactly what they need, whether that's commodity, uh, well, that, you can't customize commodities, but whether it's a good service experience or a, uh, a transformation. And, and so, so it, it is a route up that you can, this progressive economic value, and it's how you certainly should start with, with events is like knowing who your customers are, knowing who the participants are. And, and one, one of the basic things that at least sh shifts you towards transformation don't call them audience. Don't call them, um, 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 uh, what was the other one? Uh, 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 attendees, right? Call them participants, right? Because you have to actively, people change themselves. All you can do is guide them to change. 
So, uh, so you understand each individual participants and what the experiences are that they're going through can help a lot. My friend uh, Paul Zach of uh, Immersion Neuroscience right, has this wonderful ability to take a Fitbit device and be able to, he, he correlates all what's going on with the blood flow with what's happening in your brain and can actually draw the level of immersion, he calls it, you are in an event, right? And, it, and it's a great thing that event owners should take a look at because now if, if, if the people want or in, are willing to do that because you, you, you want this relationship with them and they want it with you, they want you to help them, then you can see where they're at during the entire event and be able to do interventions when, when it might be necessary. Understand, well, this really hit this partic particular person really well. This event hit, part of it hit that person really well. And now you start to get to know them so that you can, in fact, customize for them during the, this event at real time, during the next event and everywhere in between. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. Yeah, it sounds really promising. And I think one of the things that uh, one of the areas within events that uh, I think would be very interested in this is our associations, you know, these industry associations that are trying to help professional development, etc. Uh, I think that this concept of having events and then kind of helping people uh, when there aren't events is, is ideal for associations. My experience, though, is that most people, you know, when there's an event, there's something exciting, there's travel, there's something happening, and they get excited and they kind of do stuff. But then most um, situations where I see companies and organizations trying to help people along the way and kind of provide support, there isn't that excitement. There isn't that sort of like, you know, focused attention of thousands and thousands of people at the same thing. And so this idea of kind of three, six, five event or sort of extending and kind of making it a lot of times falls flat on its face in my experience. Have you experienced the same thing? Well, I think it's it's so easy to do, right? particularly if it's not done well. I mean, you're, you're exactly right, Miguel, in that you have an excitement around the event. And the question is, how do you extend that? So so think about this. What The, the best extending of an experience that I know of is Disney's PhotoPass system. Right. So the PhotoPass system uh, is one where um, when you... Um, um, uh, go into a park, they, they connect it with your the magic band or with your phone. Um, they'll take pictures of you every once in a while. So you got these professional uh, photos of you and your family. Um, and uh, then you go back, you're able to take a look at those and you design a photo book, right? You can upload your own pictures. You can uh, access stock photography of here's the best picture of the castle or the parade or whatever it might be. And then and then you also bring in the, the pictures that they have taken of you and you put together your own book uh, and then and then you submit it. And then a couple of weeks later, you get the book. Right. And now look at what's happening is you go to the experience, you have these great memories. Right. But memories have a half life where they go down. And so a week or two later, you design the photo book and you're going, oh, remember this? Remember that? And you're cementing those memories. And then a couple of weeks later, and actually you don't want it to be the next day, right? You want it to be a couple of weeks later where they get the actual book and then they go through it again. 
right? And you've really cemented the memories. You have created the best vacation where you've forgotten about all the stuff that didn't go right. And, and it's just a wonderful way of, 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 of cementing those memories. Now, that same sort of thing is what you can do for a transformative experience. Is like a couple of weeks later, you you set a a date and a time, right, with the individuals that you're working with. Say, okay, we're going to meet and we're going to go over what happened and we're going to discuss it and you're going to get feedback from them about what they really got out of what they didn't, and then you're going to help cement those memories of the best parts of it again, uh, and then uh, and then and then you design something for them that a few weeks later, right now, a month after the event, they get back about this is their plan for the next year. Now you start working that plan with them with, with coaching, you know, once a month or whatever it might be. Now that's the sort of way to do it. You know, learning from what uh, Disney is doing with the photo pass. I think that's a great example. And I'd like to see um, more events do that. Um, I don't know, I know some do, but I'd like to definitely see more. What about AI? I mean, you've been kind of thinking and, and talking about technology in, in all your work or a lot of your work. Um, I definitely see AI at least as the potential to do a lot of this mass customization in a much more affordable way than I think has been we've been talking about in the past. I think a lot of tech companies have suggested that this kind of customization is possible around events, but in practice, it's very hard to do. Is that your take with AI that it's going to enable us to do these things that we've been kind of talking about that been very hard? Yeah, for the last I think, year? yeah, because one of the things AI can especially do you know, a couple of things, but one is is to is to allow you to understand what's going on in real time and make real time changes right you've got to be open to that you've got to think of the event uh less as platform theater where you know sage on the stage and more as street theater and improv where you're doing different things based on on what's happening and willing to to change things up um the think about the ability to feed all the data about how you are feeling at this exact moment how, how immersed you are in the event into an ai of everybody and being able to see what's going on and then make individual recommendations to them and so ai definitely does also help with that customization aspect of it and um uh, because it can uh, understand all the possibilities that are out there and, and what individuals are looking for particularly when we gear it toward individuals the the, the all the generative AI today is based off of large language models, LLMs. But we also need to get to the point, and this would be difficult on an event basis, but in many other situations, you know, but it would be possible uh, if you have somebody who has, a, you know, an, an annual membership of a year-long um, 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 uh, interaction with you is is PLMs or personal language models that are, that are based off of this individual and sort of act more as my agent or more as my avatar of of so you can understand what it is that my i might want even do sort of like monte carlo simulations with with a bunch of variations of an avatar to see what what happens in the end and what's the most likely path that is going to get you to the the transformation that you want and um and one of the keys is to understand that that almost everybody that looks at ai no matter what they say what, what goes off in their heads is automation right that i can get rid of people i can have this technology take over and do things and that's not the way to approach it there are some things where that's going to happen but it's much much better as an augmentation tool not an automation tool that helps people get do their jobs better that give them better uh, data better resources better information again about individual uh, participants in your event and when we have that attitude, then I think we'll find much better ways to be able to do things and um, and uh, and how to stage uh, better events. 
I, I agree. AI, I think, is very exciting, and then the possibilities are are really interesting. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, in infinite possibility, creating customer value on the digital frontier, you talk about all these amazing possibilities of, of digital experiences. And one of the things that you talk about is our kind of virtual experience or VR, AR, all these kind of different things. Um, with kind of the pandemic, I think a lot of event professionals kind of went through this, you know, had to do online events and, and then kind of some of them worked well, some of them didn't work so well. I think particularly when it comes to networking, there's a kind of consensus that that didn't work so well um, online during the pandemic. Has your view on any of that changed? Um, you know, I, I, you, you mean in terms of like using Zoom and, and other things to be able to do virtual events? Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds to me like you're quite a big fan of virtual technology, augmented technology, right, right. all this kind of thing. And and I think a lot of people tried or, or were quite excited about right. it um, before the pandemic. And then it felt like the pandemic kind of tested a lot of the theories and they didn't quite right, work right. out like people thought. No, no. But I but there I think there are also some amazing innovations that happened online particularly with physical experiences that can only do things uh, um, online um, um, that I, you know, I did some amazing things with my family, you know, from three different households and, and being in one virtual experience and, and so forth. So there was a lot of innovation that would work. Um, and, um, and there are, there are also techniques to make uh, things like zoom work better for events. So one of the things I've done with, you know, small events uh, that I do, uh, like our our experience economy expert certification course and so forth um, is do a walkabout as as part of it where right okay so let's let's have a half hour where you're talking to each other but instead of breaking up into little zoom rooms no share phone numbers walk outside and uh, and get away from this environment and just have a conversation right not worrying about uh, you know how you look and and all those sorts of things. And it's a wonderful technique that uh, that works well. In my book, Infinite Possibility, one of the things that I say in there though is that reality will now and forevermore provide the richest of experiences. Right. So physical events are so much better than virtual events. Right. What virtuality is best for, and augmented reality uh, is for things that are impossible in reality. So if you want to do things, if you want to just replicate what's done in reality online, then uh, then it's not going to be as good. But if you can cre create things that are impossible to do in reality, uh, then those are the things that you want to look for, uh, including you know just like like having a meeting on the moon and what would that be like and and, and so forth um, are the things to to look for. It sounds to me like what you're saying is don't try to replace events and do them virtually, but actually think about the possibilities that you can create with technology. Right now, I will say this, I actually wrote a, a, a blog post um, very early, in the, I think it was early in the pandemic, but um, on hybrid events, All right? As, I think as, as we were starting to come out, that, the, that the, one of the things it does teach is that there still was a lot of value to be able to do things virtually, right? If you can't do them physically, do things virtually. So I had this sort of like pyramid model that says like, you, know, you can charge a lot of money for the physical event, but you can also then charge for people that are not there physically, not as much because they're not getting as much value out of it. But there is a, a you know, you could get an order of magnitude more people that could pay you a quarter as much and you've made more money, right? It's all gravy based off the physical event that you're doing. You can also then film all of that as you're doing it 
and and be able to then sell it afterwards as the individual chunks of each of the session for people that want to have it or give it to members of of, of yours. So I think that that the notion of having an, a physical event and then and then and then doing virtual uh, uh, off of that physical event, both synchronously live and asynchronously later, is a way that a lot of event producers could could uh, create a lot more value and, and make a lot more money. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of examples of that and we report on that on Skiff meetings. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in agreement. I'm also seeing a lot of different types of, of hybrid events, you know, and reasons for having hybrid events. So the term hybrid events has sort of shifted quite a lot in, in the last few, few years, um, also because of the pandemic. I wanted to ask, you know, you re-released The Experience Economy and, you know, it's it's 98, the original book. Um, the concept definitely still stands, but do you see different approaches to the way people think about the experience economy now? Like what has actually changed from organizations looking at the experience and economy, economy and trying to kind of apply it in some way? Um, there, there, I mean, there has been a lot of change. Um, there's a lot more intentionality to do to, to it, uh, where people really focus on creating a great experience rather than just being experiential, right? So, so the, which is sort of like playing around with it. Said, so, no, no, this is really what it's about. And, and a lot of organizations recognizing that they're in the business of of experiences that that's what they what they do. Another big change, um, which which actually is, is sort of our always been natural in events, uh, is is one of the things we said uh, back then is that you'd see more and more companies charge admission for their experiences. Right, a lot of companies give away the experience to better sell their goods and services. You know, I, I often talk about Starbucks as a icon of the experience economy because they took a lowly coffee bean worth about two or three cents per cup and turned it into a coffee drinking place uh, worth four, five, six dollars per per cup uh, because of the experience that they create. Although increasingly they're commoditizing themselves, but they never figure out how to charge for it. And fundamentally, you are what you charge for. And if you if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. But economically, you're in the experience business if and only if you charge for time, the time customers spend with you. And so, uh, and that, and I mean, we've always seen that. You you would imagine going to a theme park or a sporting event, a concert, a play, a movie without, <coughs> excuse me, uh, charging to, without paying an admission fee. But now we have retailers that pay admission fees. We have restaurants that have tickets that you you buy to go in. We have manufacturers that have gotten in the, into in the ticketed attractions and so forth. And tourism areas that even charge admission for the tourism area, not for the individual attractions within it and so forth. Venice is now doing that uh, because of the overcrowding that, that, the, that they have there. Uh, and so that's a big deal. Um, but events have always basically charged admission, right? And I think that's the right, right approach. Um, but also another way of charging for time is a membership fee. And what, what uh, and some events do are part of a membership thing, but I think all events should consider, again, this year-long thing. How do we get it to be a year-long thing where we have the membership fee in addition to the event fee for coming to that particular event? And then when it comes to transformations, charging for time isn't enough because inputs don't matter, only outcomes. So you need to charge for the demonstrated outcomes your customers achieve, right? So, so, and, and I actually see that increasingly going on uh, where, where you, you've got a, either a transformation guarantee that if you don't achieve your aspirations, you get 25% of your money back. 
or I'm going to take a piece of this, of, of, of the gain that you get, I'm going to take a piece of it and charge for uh, for however much you, you get over that. Uh, healthcare is increasingly going to outcomes-based um, uh, uh, charging, uh, value, they call it value-based charging, uh, because, because again, that's all that matters, right? You put a pacemaker in heart, Medtronics is one of the companies that's doing this, you put a pacemaker in my heart and it doesn't work for me, right? What am I paying for, right? It, 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 you you got to go in again and do it again, right? Uh, Geisinger Health in the in the, uh, uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania area, they have guarantees on their knee replacements, right? If we have to go in for any reason, there's no more charge, right? We we make it right until uh, until it's right. Sort of like Starbucks saying we'll give you a you know we'll fix your drink if it's not right, but it's a lot more expensive to be able to do that. So so that's where with events, if you do have that year long thing. Uh, and you and you have a set aspiration that they're looking for. You can think about well, how do I actually get paid based off of that aspiration, that achievement that they have, as opposed to just for the time that I'm spending with them. I want to dig into this a little bit further because I think it's really interesting that you brought up that this is very important. You know, what you charge for is is kind of what you're what you're doing. And, and taking the Starbucks example, I, I can see your point in saying you know you're not charging for people to come in and be in a Starbucks environment, but Starbucks makes their money from the product, right, or, or I guess a mix of the right. product and the service and the way they serve you, etc. But you're saying that they're they're not doing it right in a way because they're not charging right. you for that right. for that kind of time that you're doing. And I'll, that. and I'll tell you what they should do. Okay. Right. What Starbucks should do is one is because one of the problems is draw, first drive through and now especially mobile ordering is commoditizing their own experience. Right. People are buying it are coming in and not spending time in the place and not even not even enough to get the to to have the order made and so forth right they're just boom there's my drink and and back more likely it's where's mine where's my you know and then they leave but anyway uh, you, they, you can't really do all those things effectively in one place so what they should do is they should charge less for drive-through and mobile ordering right they should make the point of you are that the difference, even if just a quarter or 50 cents, right, is your pay, your admission fee to the experience of sitting down in here. Prenna Manger in, in the UK does that, where they're there, you buy a uh, quick service uh, sandwich and a drink, they're they're uh, um, uh, 50 pence more if you stay in versus take away, right? So you're charging for the place, and that's exactly what Starbucks should do. Uh, is announced that they're charging less. Now, what will happen actually is they'll get the, the the less back up to where it is and they'll be charging more for it and they'll make more money as a result in the end if they do it that way. And if more people say, oh, because it's less, I'll, I'll mobile order instead of go in. Well, guess what? That gives more freedom and space for people to have a great experience and more people will take advantage of that. That's interesting. I mean, in a way, like, are you saying that a loss leader or that kind of concept is is the wrong concept? Because it sounds to me like Starbucks normally, you know, doesn't charge, but they make their money back in, you know, the right. products, right? Right. Well, I'm saying it's 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 all of the above. I mean, like, so think about Disney theme park again. One way of viewing a Disney theme park, and I'm not going to say it's a wrong way. One way of viewing it is it's a giant shopping mall, right? They create this great experience, get people to pay in, so that they pay to be to buy all of the goods and services that they have in there, right? That they they buy the Mickey Mouse hats and watches and, and all that. Right. There's there there's no reason you can't make money at all of the levels, right? That you charge your mission for the experience, you then uh charge for services that are in there, parking services, food services, photographic services, then you charge for the physical goods that they buy as memorabilia for the experience. So Starbucks could do the, that the same way. 
right? Is they add a new uh, ticket fee onto what they're already charging for and allows them to make money and aligns what they're doing. Then they'll do a better job of making the inside experience is one of the key things that'll happen, right? That's one of the reasons why you want to charge me. If you don't charge an admission fee, then chances are you're not going to design an experience worthy of an admission fee, right? So you need to, to do that. I'm going, I'll mention too, I'm going to uh, uh, Porto, Portugal next month. And, uh, and I've been wanting to go there for a while um, because people have told me of this bookstore. I'm, I'm terrible at Portuguese, but it's like uh, uh, Leo Levera uh, bookstore uh, where they charge admission to go in. And it turns out it's like the most beautiful bookstore in the world. Uh, it has this unbelievable staircase that supposedly inspired J.K. Rowling when she wrote the first Harry Potter. She lived in Porto for the Hogwarts staircase. And people would come in, they take pictures, take selfies, they gawk and not buy anything. But the meanwhile, they're gumming up the place. So what they did is they put a little ticket booth outside the, uh, across the street where, where the first person who told me about it said it was three euros to be able to get into the place. And then, but here's the beautiful thing, that but you get your three euros back if you buy. So now what happens is they're making money off the tickets and they're selling more merchandise, right? Not everybody buys, but those that do, they're selling more merchandise. And the, like I said, the first person told me it's three euros and somebody told me it's five euros and somebody told me it's eight euros. And my daughter went to Porto last year. She said it was 10 euros. You know, I got to, I got to go, I got to spend my money and see, see this place. I love it. I love it. You bring my Portugal, my, my home country. So, uh, so that's great to, um, to, to, to hear that. I didn't, I didn't realize actually the last time I was there, it was still free and it was oh, a yeah. very awkward experience because you have hundreds of people going in and taking exactly. selfies and sort of, you know, sort of checking if it's okay to go in and, and, right. and not buy anything. So right. it's just very awkward, right? So, so, so tell me how to pronounce it so I get it right. Layu, you got it right. Yeah. Layu, Layu Libera. Okay. Yeah. You got it right. Great. Um, Joe, fascinating uh, talking with you about this. And I think there's so many learnings from events. And, and I, I like looking at these companies like Apple and Starbucks because events are so fleeting, but yet there's so many great examples that we can take from these big companies and how they approach things. So I hope that we can take a lot of learnings from that. So I want to jump a little bit bigger picture and just grab a few ideas from you um, to kind of wrap up the show. And, and I want to go back to events and business events, so conferences, that kind of thing. You said that maybe hundreds or, or thousands that, you, that you've been to. Um, are there things that you, or maybe one thing that you really like about business events, like the thing that you like the most? Uh, but I also want to get something that you really don't like about business events that maybe we could do better. <laughs> well, I'll give, you, I'll give you two things I like. So one is what I learned, right? What I learned. And, and frankly, when I speak at business events, most of the business events I speak at, I'm in and out, right? I might try to stay for the break to talk with any, 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 any people, but I just don't see enough value in that particular event. And so, but there are some events like I say, well, this is great. You know, can I stay for the whole time, right? And so then I'm a participant because there are things that I can learn and get of value for that. And then uh, two, one of the best parts about events is the breaks <laughs> and, and people don't design the breaks well enough. They're designed to be too short. They cut short the breaks when things are, are behind schedule and so forth. Uh, Jim and I, for one of our think about events, we took over an entire hotel, uh, um, the, the uh, hotel Avante Mountain View, one of Chip Conley's Joie de Vivre hospitality hotel. He's one of our experienced stage of the year award winners. And, um, and we designed it as one long break interrupted by a few learning points, right? And it was just an amazing thing. It worked really well. 
we would have people to go to different places and talk about different subjects, whatever. And, and then we'd come in and spark little conversation sparklers where we come in and say, okay, now do this exercise and then talk. Uh, and, uh, and, and that worked really well. People gained uh, just a ton out of that. Re recognize the value of the breaks and how do you design them so that people are talking to each other uh, and not give them short shrift, right, is, is, is one of the, the, the key things. Um, what I like least about them is, is sort of when they are just sort of droning on, right, and, they, and you're just sitting in a chair for too long. Again, think of them as participants, not attendees. Like even when I give when I give a speech, if it's if it's more than forty five minutes, and 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 often if it's less if it's less than that, is I want an interaction. I want people talking to each other about it. I want them to 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 move their chairs around, and and I sort of like how uh, being is different than it was before. One one event I actually did in in Venice, there were maybe it was like I don't know sixty eighty people in there, and it, and it turned out as I was this was one I actually stayed for. It was a great event. Um, but the chairs were so uncomfortable and you just got, you know, the, the talks are only like 20 minutes, but still you're sitting there 20 minutes after 20 minutes and they're uncomfortable. So what I did is when I got on, uh, is I told everybody, okay, everybody stand up, right? Stand up. So everybody stands up and we're like, why we're standing? I says, it's not that we're going to do anything special or stand up. I just know you've been sitting down for a while. I want you to feel comfortable. I'm going to go ahead and start talking. And I want you to stay standing up as, as, as long as you want. Right. And some people stood for most of the whole, whole thing. And um, and then I also said, and this just happened in my head at the moment, I said, now, I know there's some of you in the back are going to use this opportunity to sneak out, but you'll miss the best part of the entire event, I said. <laughs> and and, uh, and so one guy told me afterwards, says, I was halfway out the door when I heard you say that, and I came back, and you're right. It was the best part of the event, he says humbly. So, uh, you know, so there's things that you can do uh, to be able to, to, to counteract that. Uh, I'm happy to say, hear you say that, and I wouldn't expect anything else from you, but I'm also a big fan of interaction and getting people moving. And uh, yeah, I, I, I try to keep it to about 10 minutes max of okay. myself talking and then kind of, you know, having some sort of interaction. But yeah. um, Joe, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I hope everybody else has, has enjoyed this as much as I have. I wanted to get your recommendation. Like we ask every guest of the podcast to recommend someone else so that we could invite. You were uh, recommended by Kalia Dams, one of our most recent uh, podcast guests. And, and I think it's great that we were able to bring you on so quickly. I wanted to get your recommendation as well for someone. Yeah, actually, I, I, I want to recommend Jake Halpert. Uh, Jake Halpert is the founder of the Transformational Travel Council. Right. So this is a company that focuses on helping business turn their travel into transformations right, and help transform people via the travel that they go to. And uh, and events are generally traveling. Right? You're traveling to an event. I think there's a lot that event professionals can learn about how consumers transform uh, through going because it is you know, it's a short term event. It's not necessarily a business oriented event, but that's what they're doing. I think there's a lot of applications that could uh, very well apply to to what you're doing. I'm happy to make the introduction. I appreciate it. Great recommendation. I really appreciate it. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, if, is there anything that you'd like to uh, tell our guests in terms of where they can find you or anything new that you're working on that you want to discuss or introduce? Sure, or you're sure. very welcome so, to do that. Yeah, so um, um, you can find me at strategichorizons.com, strategichorizons with an S.com. It's also easy to connect with me on LinkedIn, just Joe Pine uh, on LinkedIn. Um, at the website, you'll learn about all our offerings, including our certification course, our uh, on-stage uh, frontline training program, 
that could be that would be very applicable to uh, events as well and all of our books and everything. Um, and and one of the things I'm I'm, I'm going to start working on in the first quarter is a book on transformations. Uh, and I've got a you know, number of frameworks that I've developed. It's time to start working on a full book on that. It is for people today to understand. It is chapters nine and ten, the experience coming. It's always been there from the very beginning. So you can get that out of there. And then, as you mentioned, the Harvard Business Review article uh, early last year uh, on the new you business is a great resource as well. But I want to write a full book on it. So I'm actually going to myself create a membership fee offering where people can get access to the book early, where, where everything that I write, I'll post on there to get feedback, make it better and so forth. And actually, uh, you know, people can become part of the uh, writing of it. I love it. I think that's a great idea. And I look forward to, to hearing more about it. So uh, please let us know when it's ready to launch. Super. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you for being on, Joe. Thank you so much. Great.